toward the end of that long, now famous night under the Bodhi tree. And after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially obstructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of aversion, of desire, and delusion at Siddhartha, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and, of course, then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his vow and determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, accompanied with the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a sense of exploration, of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with a refreshing joy, balanced with the deep power and ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama, sitting under the Bodhi tree that night with unshakable stability, an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind, factors of heart, perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, this about-to-be Buddha, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingers, fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to return to the Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always uh, quite exactly like the Buddha, but we sit. We're here for three months or six months. We sit and we walk in retreat settings in other places at other times. We sit at home alone. We sit with friends. Our aspirations and determination, sometimes quite strong, sometimes paling, probably sometimes forgotten, and certainly many, many times remembered.
as we do practice over the years through this lifetime, the seven qualities or factors of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated, unprompted at that point, and all in place within Siddhar- in Siddhartha that night under the Bodhi tree, as we practice, these qualities or positive factors of mind continue to grow, continue to deepen, continue to mature, and to be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens as long as we keep practicing. This evening, we'll touch into the first six of these qualities, or what are called the factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, and discernment, energy and effort, joy, concentration, and calm, tranquility. And then we'll spend a bit more time exploring the last quality, the enlightenment factor of equanimity. We'll touch in and explore from a couple of different but related perspectives, that of our own direct experience and our cultivation or prompting of these qualities through our practice. And from the perspective of the experience of their unfabricated, unprompted presence as aspects of the mind, aspects of the heart of non-clinging, as aspects of the liberated mind, the liberated heart. One of the things that Upandita Sayadaw told us has been a touch point, a reminder for me, many, many times over the years. And so I'd like to begin our exploration with this. He said that um, most people think that everything begins here. And he pointed to his head, or he tapped his head. And then he would say, but I've been checking for a long, long time. (laughs) He said, and I found that everything begins here. And he patted, or he kind of thumped his chest, his heart center. Everything begins here, he said. Krishnamurti had another way of expressing it. He said that meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. This meditation can't be learned from another. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. As we touch into each of these qualities, or factors of enlightenment, you might offer yourself the possibility of letting the words be appointing to or appointing out towards directly connecting with each one or maybe at least some of these qualities 
within yourself as we go along. Letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into the hearing. So, beginning with the first factor, mindfulness. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. A reflective, receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. Mindfulness doesn't think, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Actually, the moment we think, I'm doing this, we become self-conscious. We create or recreate the self. And we're living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me. This quality or factor of mindfulness is about living in the action, living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. We lose our self in what is. And so there just there is just what is. Mindful, mindfulness connects firmly, strongly, steadfastly with the object, with what is, establishing itself within some immediate aspect of our body-mind experience. Mindfulness is the mental factor by which we remember. We remember, so to say. We connect to things. We connect to our experience. Mindfulness doesn't just kind of float along on the surface of things. It touches deeply into the object, thoroughly aware of whatever it touches. But it's not a fixated, not a sticky kind of connection. It's a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough to know it, lights in an object just long enough to know it. Mindfulness clearly comprehends whatever it connects with. In any given moment, it might be mindfulness or what it's sometimes called as contemplation of the body in the body our experience in the physical body, the direct sensations, for instance, of breath, of the posture, sitting or standing or lying down or moving, or sensations in particular areas or parts of the body. In another moment, 
There could be mindfulness of the feeling tone of experience, the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling tone, meaning the mental experience, for instance, of physical sensations, contemplation of the feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutral in the feelings themselves. Mindfulness also connects directly with the consciousness or knowing, the bare awareness aspect of our experience, which is immediately, almost always, colored or modified by various mental factors. For instance, mindfulness knows the mental factor or coloration of the mind of greed within the greed itself. Hatred or anger or fear or delusion become known within themselves. Consciousness colored, for instance, by faith or by wisdom or by sleepiness or by distraction are directly connected, penetrated into, and known by mindful awareness. The fact that there is consciousness, there is knowing in every moment, every single moment, that itself can be experienced directly via mindfulness. In the Abhidhamma, there are quite a number of different types of consciousness. They're listed and they're described. And I'm not going to go through them all. It's really not at all necessary to differentiate uh, or to be able to name all of these. It's actually quite enough for us to be aware of the colorations of any given moment of consciousness. For instance, the colorations that are present through the mental factors that accompany consciousness. The colorations of sleepiness or distractedness or wisdom, etc. So, mindfulness of consciousness and the colorations therein through the mental factors that color each moment of consciousness. And again, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, between good or bad. Within mindfulness itself, There's no grasping, there's no rejecting, there's no manipulation of experience. The last aspect of mindfulness is what is called mindfulness or contemplation of the dhammas, which is mindful awareness grounded in the six sense doors, 
hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. It's mindfulness that's grounded in the five hindrances, so-called hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt, the wanting mind, the aversive mind. And it's mindfulness grounded in the seven factors of enlightenment themselves. Mindfulness of dhammas is both in the realm of physical phenomena and in the realm of mental phenomena. In this case, the word dhamma or dhammas can be translated as the truth, can be translated as the way of things. So from this perspective, all things, every single experience, every single phenomena is Dhamma. Each and every, all of it, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the way of things, is within everything, simply there to be seen, to be known, if we just take the time to look. The truth is right here. It's right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body and mind. And within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. Mindfulness of dhammas, of the truth, of the way of things is the non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, radically receptive relationship to all of our body-mind experience. Whatever phenomena is present in the field of awareness, Mindfulness of dhammas sees what is known in relation to the truth of suffering. The dhamma of suffering, of the suffering nature of any given phenomena, is known. Mindfulness of dhamma knows the truth of the cause of suffering in relation to our experience and knows the Dhamma, the truth, of the momentary or sustaining ending or elimination of suffering in relation to our life, here and now, in any given moment. These knowings arise in any given moment of mindfulness, or as Carol calls it, any moment of truth discerning awareness. And then lastly, with the factor, the factor of enlightenment of mindfulness of dhammas, we see the way of the dhamma, the way of life, we could say, what's called the Eightfold Path. We see the way the way of the Dhamma that has the potential to 
lead us to, or maybe more accurately, to reveal to us the ongoing possibility of the complete and final ending of suffering. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. It's not like the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into the delusion. The magic of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without mindfulness, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we actually suffer unnecessarily in this believed unreality. Krishnamurti said that if we don't know what it is, what meditation is, what mindfulness is, we're like a totally blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. And this is a quote from Nan Shin that I really like. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. So the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Our relationship to this quality of awareness as a factor of enlightenment is that we know when, when it is. We know when mindfulness is present within us, or we know when it's not present within us. We'll move along now to touch into the next five factors. The next one being investigation or exploration, which actually I've included uh, in this just previous discussion of mindfulness. It's the activity, we could say, of mindfulness. It's the light of knowing, the activity of discernment, the lamp of understanding, it's sometimes called. Investigation penetrates things right into their particular individual essence. It illuminates the object. We see the object of our mindfulness clearly. Investigation eliminates a sense of bewilderment or confusion. For, for example, we see breath, maybe its particular qualities, long, short, smooth, rough, deep, shallow. We know directly when a breath comes. We know directly when a breath goes. We're not lost in the forest, so to say. Investigation is our guide through the forest of phenomena. This is a a poem that talks about this in a particular way called Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. 
the leaves ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush does, is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So the second factor, investigation. When it's present in us, we know the enlightenment factor of investigation of objects is present in me. And when it's not there, we know that it's not there. The third quality of mind or factor of enlightenment is energy or effort. It's the mental effort, the energy that's present in every single moment of mental activity. It's present in every single moment of mindful awareness. The Buddha's effortless effort that night under the tree means that there was just enough energy, not too much, not too little, too much effort leads to too much energy, which manifests as restlessness. Too little effort leads to too little energy, which manifests as sleepiness. It's a balancing act, we could say. And as each one of you knows very well, energy, effort is essentially necessary for our practice. It both supports and helps the factors of mindfulness, the factors of investigation. In the classical teachings, energy is described as manifesting in meditators as a non-sinking, non-collapsing. Energy and effortless effort is a circular happening. We put forth energy, we make an effort in every posture in our practice, sitting, standing, lying down, moving. We put forth energy, we make an effort in every moment that we mindfully connect, that we mindfully connect with and investigate, in every moment that we explore our experience. We make an effort, we put forth energy. Whenever there's just the right amount put forth, then this energy and effort creates more of itself. And we enter into the circle, we could say, of sustaining energy and effortless effort in our practice. Kind of like practice does itself at that point, and we 
show up for it, we could say. There's no meditation practice, there's no fruit of practice without making an effort, without using energy, as we well know. The Buddha tells us that when the enlightenment factor of energy is present, one is to know the enlightenment factor of energy is in me. When the enlightenment factor of energy is absent, one is to know the enlightenment factor of energy is not in me. The fourth factor of enlightenment is joy. We could call this joy a lightness of being, a refreshment and lightness of being. This refreshment circulates through our body, through our mind, like a river, like waves, like light maybe like a comfortable coolness. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks of his joy as being like spring, so warm that it makes the flowers bloom. With joy we feel energetically lightened. We feel well in the midst of whatever phenomena is presenting itself. We feel imbued with this refreshing lightness of being. There's a sense of a certain kind of transformation, a kind of healing when the factor of joy is present in us. Our meditation practice is refreshed. It's refreshed with a renewed and renewing energy and inspiration as a factor of enlightenment, we know when joy is present in us and when it's absent. The fifth factor is calm, tranquility. We feel composed, a smoothness, a quietness. We feel a gentleness, a stillness within our body and mind. And it seems without any special effort at all, the various disturbances of consciousness and mental factors are quieted. Mental and physical disturbances are cooled down, inactive in the moment of tranquility. There's very little, if any, discomfort. It's a place of the heart of easefulness in our practice. As a factor of enlightenment, we know when calm, when tranquility is in us. We know when it's absent from us. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration. 
the mind and heart of non-distraction, non-dispersion. Concentration is the focusing power of the heart, mind. Concentration gathers in, gathers back, reigns in the scattered and wandering energies of mind, of heart. It's the capacity of the heart, of the mind, to stay with and sink into the object just deep enough and long enough as is appropriate in order to see it clearly. Ajahn Chah, the Thai meditation master, talked about concentration as like turning on the switch in order to see clearly with wisdom being the resulting light. He said that concentration is the empty bowl. Wisdom is the food that fills it to make the meal. The focused mind, the concentrated mind, is a peaceful mind. As this cohesive capacity or factor deepens, develops, and matures, one experiences more calm, more tranquility, more refreshing joy. And again, as a factor of enlightenment, one knows very directly, very clearly, the enlightenment factor of concentration is in me. Or if it's absent, one knows it's absent. So touching into the first six factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, energy, effort, joy, and concentration. Each of these qualities are present to varying degrees and at various times throughout our practice. We come to know them intimately. We cultivate them. They organically grow and develop over time. They're natural, perfectly natural aspects of awareness itself. The last and seventh factor or quality is equanimity. Equanimity could be likened to a mountain. In Taos, we have uh, a sacred mountain, or actually the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians in Taos, includes this sacred mountain. It's sacred to the Tiwa people. I actually think that the Taos mountain is in some way a sacred symbol for most Taosinos. And I have the uh, good fortune to look out at it and take it in in any season, in every season, any day of the year, because it's clearly visible from where I live. So this sacred mountain, or any mountain for that matter, it just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it. 
rain and hail falls on it. Snow sometimes covers it. Lightning strikes it. Fire sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unwavering, unshakable. The mountain of radical acceptance, we could say. The mountain of equanimity. It itself is a live energy, a lively energy in itself. It appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling onto. It's not attached to. It lets life live through it, so to say. This is a part of a poem called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. Hokusai says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. (laughs) He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. The enlightenment factor of equanimity is not indifference. Indifference may masquerade as equanimity for us at times. But actually, indifference is a separation. It's a subtle pulling away. Indifference is an aspect of aversion. Indifference creates a duality. The duality of you and me, the duality of me and it. Connection is severed with indifference. Life doesn't live through us if we're indifferent. Equanimity is actually the fearless, 
fearlessness and the power of the heart, of the mind, to experience all kinds of change, to experience every kind of change in the realm of form, feelings, in the sometimes startling experiences and changes in the spheres of the the six sense doors and states of mind, in all of the vicissitudes of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, and yet remained centered, remain unshaken, unmoved. This unshakability, this balance of being, this equanimity has been called the heart of greatness. There's an amazing practice that um, is sometimes done by particular groups of Hopi Indians. It's a kind of equanimity practice, a practice of the heart of greatness. It's actually not a practice that I recommend, and you'll see why in a minute. (laughs) This is um, from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind, of, with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll on the sand, taking their bath. The big yellow rattler, then a big yellow rattler, moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face then going to sleep. (laughs) It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. Until equanimity is truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. And one of the interesting things to me about about this is that equanimity itself is the growing spaciousness of heart that includes losing our balance in any of the realms of experience in this constantly changing life. A couple of years ago, I sat the second half of the three-month retreat here, and I was practicing metta for the first month or so, and then equanimity for the last two weeks. And I was feeling, um, at the end of that, feeling quite uh, a deep and quiet sense of balance, of evenness, of 
heart and mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up. There's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, um, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. And then the next thought was, if this was a Zen practice session, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, so uh, Vipassana teachers don't do that. And then the thought just disappeared. Later that day, I actually was startled uh, in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test, uh, Vipassana style. I got a note. (laughs) Not too (laughs) Zen-like. The note was signed by Sharon, um, who was one of my equanimity teachers during that retreat. But actually, the note was from all of the three-month teachers. And it said, um, we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. For a moment, uh, my equanimity flew right out the window. (laughs) My heart felt like it stopped when I read that note. And I said, I can't do this. I can't do this now. I've been silent for six weeks deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and give a talk. I can't do it. It's impossible. And it really did, for a few moments, feel totally impossible. And then the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) Of course, this is my equanimity test. I can do it. I want to do it. And then I began to feel a tremendous gratitude for the teachers, uh, all of the teachers who'd been so helpful and so generous over the past six weeks, and for all of the IMS staff. And suddenly, equanimity was back. My balance was back. And what what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. There's a a prayer that I like a lot that says, please grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so we practice. We prompt the quality of equanimity directly as one of the divine abidings. Reminding ourselves over and over and over again that things are as they are. That each of us, each one of us, are heirs to our own karma. And that our happiness or our suffering depends upon our actions, not upon our wishes. We remind ourselves to accept things as they are and to be undisturbed by the changes, the comings and goings of experience, the beginnings and endings of events, the arisings and passings of life itself. 
and we practice vipassana. Again and again and again, we see how it is. And slowly this heart of greatness grows and develops and matures. The wisdom of equanimity begins to live through us more and more often, unprompted. When the enlightenment factor of equanimity is present, we know the enlightenment factor of equanimity is in me. And when it's absent, we know the enlightenment factor of equanimity is not in me. Each of these seven factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, concentration, tranquility, and equanimity are their own strands, each with their own particular qualities, with each strand being intrinsically interrelated and reflective of every other strand. In any moment, each and all of these threads can arise and weave together within the boundlessness, within the clear light and spaciousness of awareness. In any moment, the tapestry of each and all of the factors of enlightenment just are unprompted, unfabricated. They just simply and naturally are. When we experience moments of freedom from suffering, when non-clinging is known, the factors, the factor, factor, seven factors of enlightenment just are. They simply just are. In a moment of pure presence, in the isness of life, as it's sometimes called, these perfectly natural factors of simply being just are. There's a story of an old Chinese Zen monk who, after quite um, a number of years of a very peaceful, easeful, easeful practice, realized that he wasn't really enlightened. So he decided to take himself up to the top of the uh, mountain next to his monastery and find a hut up there and stay there and practice until he truly reached his goal. On the way up, the old monk met an old man who was walking down the mountain. And the old man was carrying a very large bundle. The old man asked, or the, the, uh, the old man asked, where are you going, monk? And the monk answered, I'm going to the top of the mountain to sit. 
either until I get enlightened or until I die. And since the old man looked quite wise, the monk asked him, he said, Say, old man, do you know anything about this enlightenment? And the old man, who was really the bodhisattva of wisdom, Manjushri, who it's said uh, appears to people in disguise when they're ripe, when they're ready for enlightenment, His answer, uh, or his response to the question, uh, do you know anything about this enlightenment, was that he let go of the bundle he was carrying. He dropped it, let it go, dropped to the ground. And, uh, of course, in uh, Zen story style, this old monk was instantly enlightened at that moment. And he said, uh, You mean it's that simple? You just let go? You just don't grasp on to anything? The monk, as the old man started walking away, the monk turned around and looked back at the old man and said, So what now? And the old man answered by reaching down and picking up his bundle again and walking on down the mountain towards town. I'd like to <clears throat> close by reading a piece from um, Russell Swicart, who was uh, one of the astronauts um, who wrote about um, his experience in a very beautiful book called Home Planet. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed at which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to this is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. You look down and you see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you and somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. 
That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship to this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. Let's sit together for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.